Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan, joined by Andre as always. Andre, before we talk about today's episode, I want to tell everyone listening that we had a wonderful dinner at your house over the weekend, and you are actually a real chef, a master chef, if I will say. Wow. Thanks. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> That's it. I made some Thanks. curry, some dal, some green beans, some Sri Lankan cuisine for yourself and two others. So, yeah. Thanks for making it. Oh, absolutely. Although we didn't eat the pie that I Okay, hey, well, you know, maybe maybe next time something more than some Safeway pie. <laughs> I didn't figure out what to do with that. <laughs> for everyone listening, I'm completely kidding cuz I don't know if they could sense the sarcasm there. I just Anyway, we'll move past that and get to the, we'll get to today's episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Andre and I had a fantastic conversation with Dr. Sanam Vakil, uh, and Dr. Vakil is the deputy director and senior research fellow at Chatham House's Middle East and North Africa program. She's also the James Anderson professor, professional lecturer at SICE Europe, and the author of the great 2013 book Action Reaction: Women in Politics in Iran. And given her background, of course, it, it, you're all very right in that we talked about Iran uh, and the region, the geopolitics and security of the country, as well as the kind of implications for U.S. policy during uh, our episode. Uh, Andre, before we kind of hand it over to the conversation, any any things that listeners should look out for? I mean, uh, I mean, this is a great sort of overview on Iranian politics, Iranian society since the 1979 revolution. I mean, everyone seems to have an opinion about Iran these days, uh, especially when it comes to Middle East uh, politics, whether when it comes to Israel, when it comes to Saudi Arabia, like it's always Iran, Iran, Iran. But uh, do people really understand how Iran actually works, how Iran actually operates, what Iranian society actually looks like, and like what those political structures actually look like, right? So I mean, like pay attention to our discussions on, you know, who and what and where are the power centers in Iran and uh, really like, I mean, how it all works, like, because there is some myth busting that goes on in this episode, N not necessarily outlining explicit myths, but, you know, may bust some myths that you may have in your own head about your own, you know, uh, preconceived notions about how Iran is. Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, just two more points, I'd say demographics are really interesting. And she she walks us through what the uh, demographic breakdown of Iran is, um, as well as kind of, you know, the importance of history, right? Iran's sense of itself, we kind of see similar types of um, historical and, you know, national identity constructions and, and similar regimes, whether it be Russia or China, of course, in very different ways. You know, Iran's a very interesting, unique civilization, uh, nonetheless important uh, to kind of understand the Iran of today. And so uh, without further ado, on to our conversation with Dr. Vakil. Dr. Vakil, thank you so much for joining us today. We very much appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. So Dr. Bakil, uh, certainly Iran shows up in the news quite a bit, and many people will have many opinions, many vigorous opinions on what we should do with regards to our foreign policy in Iran, what should happen in the Middle East, and so on. But not many folks may perhaps understand the political context, the societal context, and the historical context that you know has really been a part of Iran's history and how Iran operates today. So uh, we want to sort of dig into some of this political context on Iran before in 1979. So most of us know about the Iranian revolution, uh, the Ayatollah coming in and taking over, uh, the overthrow of the Shah. But I guess my question to you is what dynamics were at play in the years and the decades leading up to the Iranian revolution in 1979? Did this just like happen spontaneously? What was sort of bubbling up? That is a really important question. And the history, I think, is really key to understanding uh, the evolution of Iran's politics internally, but also Iran's regional activities, which draw a lot of attention um, in the international community and in the press. And it remains a huge problem set for the United States and its traditional partners in the Middle East, including Israel and Saudi Arabia. So Iran <clears throat> uh, was a very important uh, strategic um, partner for the U.S. and for uh, 
its uh, longer term strategy in containing um, the Soviet Union after World War II. And it uh, grew, uh, that relationship grew and was nurtured um, through uh, the Shah, Mohammad Reza Shah's um, reign, which lasted from 1941 till 1979. The Shah was young, he was very ambitious. He saw um, in Iran, uh, a, a country that had um, a geographic position, strategic oil reserves, and um, it, he really sought to, to invest in the development and modernization of the country. And so it's through that prism alongside the Cold War and, and containment that the relationship with the U.S. grew. Uh, and um, Iran was an important Western ally uh, in the region for, for a number of decades. And in turn, Iran relied on the United States uh, for uh, economic support, military investment. Uh, and, you know, what developed was somewhat of an important relationship. Uh, and, and I think that's a, a key backdrop. Uh, to understand the tensions and, and insecurity and um, frustrations between uh, U.S. and Iran today. Thank you, kind of, for that historical run through. I want to ask about Iran's demographics and what really, who are the people of Iran, right? What is the religious observance? Of course, I think most people are aware that they're Muslim, um, but there are some more intricacies that we should get into to really have better understand that. So what does the demography of, of Iran look like? That's a really important question. Demography um, very much sort of reveals uh, demographic, democratic or, and demographic internal challenges for a country. Um, Iran um, is predominantly Muslim and predominantly Shia Muslim, but it does have uh, ethnic and religious uh, diversity that is unique in the region. Um, it has um, also a, a Sunni community in the country, a Christian community, um, and historically has also um, had a very large Jewish community that um, has, uh, much, most of the community has left or um, gone to Israel, but today still in Iran, there is a Jewish community that um, does exist. And ethnically, uh, the country is predominantly Persian. We don't have accurate statistics. Again, this is all like a security issue, um, like in most authoritarian states. Um, but there is a diversity in the ethnic realm as well. There are Arab Iranians, um, they're Baluchi Iranians, they're Azeri Iranians, Turkish Iranians, so they're Kurdish Iranians. Um, and so that uh, demographic um, plurality makes Iran um, quite vibrant, quite culturally interesting. And it's really a reflection of Iran's history, um, its geography, its place in the region. It's been at the crossroads of many cultures and civilizations, and its history dates back 6,000 years. Um, and I say that because oftentimes what um, observers in Washington miss about Iran is Iran's sense of itself. And that's very much tied to its history, which isn't a new history. Um, it's civilizational. And that history um, perhaps gives Iranians a sense of pride, um, nationalism, and also hubris um, that sets it somewhat apart in a region of newer states. So Dr. Bakil, uh, when we talk about Iran's political environment, and this may be three questions in one, but I'm just going to say three words, what, who, and where, perhaps, are the centers of power in Iran's political environment? It's a big question, but... Uh... Yeah, yeah, that is a big question. And you generally need a graphic <laughs> to understand the Iranian political system. Um, but let's try to keep it simple. Uh, in 1979, Iran um, experienced a revolution. It was a popularly supported revolution that brought together a myriad of Iranian um, opposition groups um, and had significant popular support. Uh, I think that ordinary Iranians um, we're looking for more democratic opportunity within the system. Uh, this developmental investment that the Shah had made had given birth to a much more educated, um, economically empowered population um, that in the context of that time um, 
was more informed about global developments and regional developments and um, the coordination among these groups uh, led to a revolution that's outcome was quite uncertain. And revolutions, if you study them, they're born of great hope as um, the scholar Crane Britain um, has written, but they don't always end uh, with the optimal outcomes um, that benefit revolutionaries. And revolutionaries go, revolutions go through cycles that lead to purges and lead to crackdowns and suppression of, of much of um, the moderate voices. And that's effectively what happened in Iran. And what grew um, out of the revolution uh, was a system um, that was based on Ayatollah Khomeini, the revolutionary sort of figurehead's um, writings in the 1970s. And he saw a role for the clergy in the in this new political order. Um, and it was based on sort of an, a really radical interpretation of Shia Islam um, that um, believes that it is waiting for the 12th Imam to return. And so having an Islamic government would, according to Khomeini, facilitate the return of this 12th Imam. Um, and so this system was developed where uh, a just and uh, educated Islamic leader would rule um, to facilitate the return of the 12th Imam. And so um, the Supreme Leader, as he's called, sits at the top of the political system. He is the most important figure um, and he rules um, in consensus. And, and um, what the Islamic Republic did was maintain the Republican elements of the system that had existed um, in Iran prior to the revolution. So there's also a parliament. Um, they created a presidency. So they created these electoral branches of government that would um, rely on popular voting um, for legitimacy. But those institutions were then balanced by uh, institutions that um, are informal or unelected. And um, the, the figures leading those institutions are directly appointed by the supreme leader. So there is disproportionate power in the hands of the Iranian supreme leader. Um, and this is something uh, that has been contested over for decades. Um, and, and there has been much debate um, inside Iran if that uh, system is going to change or evolve or reform. But, it, you know, it's very clear that uh, the system is is dominated by the supreme leader. And today that supreme leader is um, Ali Khamenei, who has been in power since 1989. Well, have, being in power since 1989, that's quite a, a long time. And, and the Ayatollah is uh, quite old. But if we think about kind of the different political structures within Iran today, of course, you said, uh, you know, you have the supreme leader, there's an executive, there's a president Raisi, uh, there's a, a parliament, and there's some form of, you know, popular voting. Are there any glimmers of democracy within Iran? Is it when we say popular voting, is it is it real popular voting? Or is it, you know, some sort of sham elections that are kind of predetermined? That's a good question. So um, since 1979, I will say that um, the system has never canceled an election and always seen elections as a vehicle of legitimacy. But in order to run for office inside Iran, um, candidates must be vetted and approved by an institution known as the Guardian Council. And that Guardian Council is responsible for making sure candidates have the right credentials to run. So that institution itself um, is non-democratic already because you have barriers um, to uh, the electoral process. Um, I would say that there have definitely been ebbs and flows in political participation in Iranian elections. Um, there have been uh, times like in the 1990s when uh, President Khatami, who is a reformist po um, po politician who sort of emerged 
quite surprisingly for uh, the Islamic Republic, um, with a lot of youth support and female support. And um, he drew out um, extraordinary participation. And I think the numbers off the top of my head were 69% of the electorate um, voted for him. And again, you know, four years later, 81% of the electorate voted for him. So there have been high points of voting and there have been low points of voting. Um, And one of the lowest... um, outcomes of elections in Iran have been for the current president, Raisi. Um, and that's a reflection of, um, you know, growing frustration, popular apathy, um, just uh, hopelessness with regards to the JCPOA, the economy. And I think that um, ordinary Iranians do want political reform, economic reform and social reform, but they sort of given up and abdicated because the system has become more repressive. And then the external environment is also um, enabling uh, and sort of allowing the government at the same time um, to justify this, this repressive behavior. I do want to talk about some of these political parties, some of these former presidents you mentioned, uh, one of them. Uh, and then I think, Ryan, you'll cover, I think, reformers versus hardliners. But before we move into that topic, I just want to ask another question about the Ayatollah uh, Khamenei. Uh, I mean, he, as Ryan mentioned, he is old. He is 82. Of course, we have our own elderly leaders in our own neck of the woods. So, you know, that might not be saying much. But uh, I guess this Ayatollah right now, how much power does he really have? Is he sort of a uh, I mean, perhaps, you know, he has power in name, but like, are there certain backers who are sort of propping him up, uh, especially in this advanced age? Or is he sort of totally in command of the situation? Is he totally in control? And is his power somewhat absolute in a way, is what I'm asking. I mean, I think there are different political models out there. And I'm, I'm certain that there are analysts um, that might characterize Khamenei's power as totalitarian. I, however, would not. Um, I think Khamenei is an authoritarian figure who has, um, let's say, a chairman-like leadership model. And he manages all of the myriad of institutions by trying to build consensus. He also very much relies on ideology, uh, Islamic ideology, anti-Western ideology, resistance ideology as a narrative to galvanize support for the Islamic Republic. And uh, he's not being propped up or backed. I mean, this is a system that um, remains very much uh, in control. Doesn't mean that there's not dissent. There doesn't mean that there isn't uh, a demand inside the country for change. But this is a system that continues to have a monopoly of, of violence and force and is not afraid to show it. And Um, the ultimate goal of the system and the individuals um, at the highest echelons of power is the survivability of the system. So they are incentivized every single day to protect the system and thereby their place in it. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen when Khamenei dies. Um, Iran has very much changed. The political um, establishment has also evolved, as have the people. But Um, You know, the Islamic Republic is in its middle age. It's 43 years old. It is no longer um, it is no longer adolescent. It is no longer, you know, a young adult. It is uh, experiencing middle age issues. And it will be interesting to see how it manages succession um, in the the next few years uh, uh, when Khamenei uh, does pass away. Let's talk about you know potential successors. I know you you know you said we don't really know what's going to happen, but I'm going to ask anyways, and and kind of ask one you know in post Khamenei, who is in the running, right? How does this kind of work? How would a a new ayatollah be chosen? Are there any that any individuals in Iran right now that are powerful enough to be likely successful? Iran has a constitution, and everything is very clearly delineated in that constitution. So there is a process and that process um, would rely on another institution called the Assembly of Experts, a body of 86 clergy members that have been elected um, after passing this Guardian Council vetting to elect the next Supreme Leader. And this is exactly what happened when Khomeini died in 1989. So one scenario is that 
the assembly of experts will whittle down and select a candidate through the same process that we have seen in the past. Um, and we've only been through this once. So, you know, we're really, we don't have a lot of data to draw upon. But the last time, um, the Khamenei, who, who, who came out ahead, um, was a man of the system himself. He was close to Khomeini, but not overtly close. He was president, um, elected two times. Um, he was very loyal to the system and the, and the political establishment. So one could just assume that those similar credentials would be important into the next running. And so if you look into the sort of candidates um, that are with, and, and we assume that the candidate will come from the assembly of experts itself, um, that in theory, they want to preserve the Islamic integrity of the system. So, I mean, one obvious candidate that I was one of the first people to write about a few years ago who could be a successor would be Iran's current president, Ebrahim Raisi. Um, he has the religious credentials. He has the ideological credentials. He's not a particularly you know, formidable human being, the same way Khamenei was nothing to write home about at the time. Um, but you know, he ticks the boxes, he will preserve the integrity of the system. And probably once he does, if he does become supreme leader, he will leave its own, his own mark on it. But of course, there are other scenarios um, that people do talk about, and they're worthwhile mentioning. Um, in the previous, so after, um, so after Khamenei came to power, um, there were debates, um, and they, they revised the constitution um, to give uh, uh, a bit more um, control to the presidency, to give more control and authority to the supreme leader. Um, but there were debates, actually, if the position of the supreme leader should not be a one-man position, but rather a council of clergy. And, and you do hear reformists in Iran um, talk about that as an alternative. Um, and then, of course, there's a possibility somewhere along the line that Iran's system could evolve away from um, the Islamic orientation of the revolution, it will be hard to imagine now with Khamenei in power, but to a more secular authoritarian model akin to, you know, some of the other authoritarian systems we see in the Middle East, be it in Egypt or Syria or, or the like. So um, those are sort of the three scenarios. But I, I do think um, the best or the most obvious and easy outcome would be to preserve the system and keep the process going. So now moving just below the Ayatollah and his power, uh, these other political entities, uh, these political parties that would exist, uh, what does the sort of dynamic between reformers and hardliners look like? So um, obviously the system is much more factionalized. And for I also, for the purpose of simplicity, <laughs> break it down um, between reformists slash moderates and conservatives slash hardliners. Um, but, you know, very basically reformists emerged in the 1990s as sort of fresh, frustrated revolutionaries that didn't see the revolution delivering. And so what they wanted was uh, to support internal reform inside the country. And effectively from 1997 until I would say 2021, they have in various ways been trying to reform the system, um, but without success because the electoral um, branches of um, Iran's government are disadvantaged. They don't have autonomous power. So um, they haven't been that successful. And then the hardliners and the conservatives are um, integralists, like akin to American judicial strict constructionists. They deeply believe in um, the letter of the Constitution um, as it has been written. They don't see reform as um, uh, a, a viable outcome because they think that reform will unsettle and destabilize the Islamic Republic from within. Um, and move the Islamic Republic away from its core ideology and values of 1979. So there is, you know, a tension between uh, these two sides. But as we are, and as it stands today, I believe that reformism as a project 
within this system has failed. It's failed to deliver. And the Iranian public um, acknowledges that in their lack of participation and in their frustration with uh, reformism. And so with kind of the frustrations within the people, there are you know, mass protests, of course, COVID led to a variety of economic issues. There's also you know, been sanctions from the U.S. Um, under the Trump, significantly you know, increased on the Trump administration. That put a, a kind of a huge economic cost uh, on the Iranian people. And so with that, you need security services. And so we have yet to kind of delve into Iran's security services. So I'll take the opportunity to do so now. Um, and Iran has a very interesting kind of structure that I'd love for you to get into. We, of course, have the traditional kind of military that we may think of, but then there are the Revolutionary Guards. And so, uh, so Dr. Vakio, could you please kind of help us understand Iran's security services, how they work, how powerful they are, and just really how, you know, cruel they, they seem to be? Mm. Um, so... On the one hand, I would like to say that Iran is unique, um, and to a certain degree, the IRGC as an entity is unique. But you know, again, if you look at authoritarian systems, um, part of the resilience of an authoritarian system is based on that system's ability to survive. And so all of these systems coup-proof, and one of the sort of basic 101 of coup-proofing is not investing in one security service, but having competing security services. And that's why the Islamic Republic had the traditional sort of army, navy, air force um, that continues to operate. Um, and then um, with the revolution, uh, they created um, out of sort of the militias and out of um, also necessity um, because the revolution gave birth to internal dissent, but also simultaneously in 1980, um, Iran found itself at war with neighboring Iraq under Saddam Hussein. So the IRGC was created and institutionalized in Iran's constitution as an entity um, that is responsible for Iran's national security. Um, and so that really empowers the, the organization um, for security-oriented matters. And in the war, they were instrumental in suppressing and consolidating the internal frontier, but also um, eventually in, in also leading the strategy against Iraq. And that war lasted eight long years. Um, now, the IRGC started out as a fighting force, but what has emerged, and again, this is not unique to Iran, what do you do with your military once the war is over? You've got to come up with uh, um, activities to keep everyone busy. You know, this was employment for eight years for many people. And um, a common strategy not unique to Iran is to allow um allowed an entity into the economic realm. And that's effectively what happened in the 1990s. And in the 1990s, Iran sought to sort of moderate, open up and try to be pragmatic with the West. It didn't quite work out um, for a variety of reasons, but the, that's where the IRGC slowly began to develop as an economic entity. And from there, um, towards the end of the decade, uh, again, because they have this security orientation, they um, also began to uh, put themselves forward as candidates, political candidates in parliament. So they have definitely grown um, as an influential entity within the system. You have analysts in the community, international community, who would say that they are the guardians, praetorian guards of the Islamic Republic, I think that they're, I see them as relevant within the Iranian deep state. They are deeply um, involved in maintaining the security and stability of the Islamic Republic. And that's politically, militarily, and economically. So on the uh, topic of security, perhaps we'll expand it now to national security. Uh, we've had a lot of talk and controversy over the JCPOA, uh, Iranian uh, nuclear proliferation. Uh, so my question is, let's sort of, you know, distill the objective facts around what nuclear proliferation for Iran looks like. So basically, does Iran actually want nuclear weapons? If so, why do they want nuclear weapons? Is it merely defensive posturing or is there truly an offensive facet to a purported nuclear strategy as some, you know, have claimed. Right. This is a complex one and we can't just take it as it is today. <laughs> we have to go back a little bit in time. So 
Iran's nuclear program um, began between the U.S. and Iran under the Shah. It was frozen um, at the outset of the revolution. Um, and through the war years, there was a decision made to begin to reinvest in that program. Iran is a signature of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, and I think that through this investment, um, and because of tensions with the United States, because of a longstanding arms embargo that has been imposed on Iran, what Iran has done um, is to develop asymmetrical defensive posture in the Middle East to protect the security and stability of the state back home. And it has done so by investing in its nuclear program, its ballistic missile program, and in its relationships, proxy relationships around the region. Let's put aside the, the latter two and focus on the nuclear program. The nuclear program, I think, was a deterrent um, investment, again, to protect the regime. And when it was made clear that Iran in 2002, that Iran was um, investing clandestinely in its nuclear program, um, so began, you know, this decade-long uh, quest uh, to develop um, the JCPOA and constrain Iran's program. I personally do not think that the Islamic Republic was intent on developing a nuclear weapon. I think that the Islamic Republic was, and, and perhaps continues to be, intent in developing capacity short of weaponizing. So it would be called a threshold state. Now, the JCPOA that was signed in 2015 is, a, I think, a really important multilateral agreement and achievement. Um, and it had proven to be successful in constraining Iran's advancements and in securing repeated Iranian compliance while the deal lasted. Of course, there were criticisms about the sunsets um, the timelines of um, that would eventually over time allow Iran to develop um, its indigenous uh, nuclear energy side of its program. But if you read the JCPOA and it's a 154 page document, you don't really have to get too far into it to understand. Um, and specifically after the first paragraph, you see that Iran commits to never producing a nuclear weapon and that the JCPOA is while it has sunsets uh, and um, timelines um, that allow for Iran to uh, begin uh, domestic enrichment, Iran has to also commit um, for in perpetuity uh, to oversight, compliance, um, intrusion by the IAEA. So it, it was, uh, I think, the best we could get in a negotiation, not an imposed agreement, uh, to monitor and manage Iran's nuclear program. Where we are today is a very dangerous point. And I think that today in 2022, with a very limited chance of securing a JCPOA and a very, um, so Iran in 2019 began to accelerate its program to develop leverage and sort of force back negotiations. Iran is perilously close to um being a threshold state, declaring itself a threshold state and using its nuclear program um, for security. Uh, so, you know, we are, I think, in a very precarious moment. So I certainly agree that we are in a precarious moment and that this kind of moment, particularly now where we're recording this, President Biden is in Israel. And I, I imagine they're talking about Iran uh, during this kind of bilateral meeting. Um, and with that, you know, Iran's nuclear capabilities will certainly come up. And so with Israel, I mean, is certainly against any sort of deal. Or they, they have been in the past. Uh, they kind of applauded the U.S. pulling out of the JCPOA. But with the Biden administration looking at a sort of JCPOA round two, um, do you think that there will, one, be an increase in the probability of conflict in the region because of kind of Israel's own kind of defensive posture um, and with that, do you think there's any sort of semblance of a deal maybe coming out of this, given the Biden administration's kind of they, they've talked about some sort of commitment towards moving towards negotiations or having some sort of kind of agreement? So the JCPOA negotiations recommenced last April. Um, and here we are in July of 2022. 
uh, without a deal. Um, there is a deal on the table, but uh, for a, a variety of reasons that uh, neither side has signed and both sides say, you know, uh, they expect more from the other. And I'm here, I'm even though this is a multilateral deal right now, this is very much about Washington and Tehran. Um, so from Tehran's side, um, it was quite keen to return um, and, of course, uh, achieve sanctions relief that has that has constrained Iran's economy in a very significant way. But um, this is where the political dynamics become very important. So the last deal was signed by uh, Iran's President Rouhani. Um, and there was a lot of euphoria um, when that deal was signed. But when Donald Trump withdrew in 2018, Rouhani was very much weakened. And then heavily criticized by Iran's conservatives for weakening the Iranian economy, okay? So in that context, this current crop of ambitious, forward-looking conservative leaders that are now all in power are looking at this JCPOA and thinking, hmm, this isn't a very long-term or sustainable deal. Um, and the reason why they're thinking that is they're looking at the uh, American political system. They're seeing a not particularly motivated President Biden. Um, they're seeing a weak President Biden, particularly after the Afghan withdrawal and the optics of that. Um, and they've, you know, concerned about the um, November elections, and they're quite conscious that this deal could again be fragile, and another Republican could be elected in 2024, and they could withdraw. So, you know, those are the dynamics that are framing. Uh, where we are today. The U.S. government does want a deal. The deal is the best way to constrain Iran's nuclear program, but the U.S. government um, cannot provide Iran with the political guarantees that the deal will be sustainable. And the Iranian government, from their view, cannot sign on to a deal that will delegitimize them in two years. So you see we're like in a game of chicken. And it's here where the Israelis have flip-flopped all around the table. They supported Donald Trump withdrawing. Then uh, Benny Gantz's government um, and Naftali Bennett uh, decided that a deal is better than no deal. Um, but the Israelis have been, you know, uh, engaged in sabotage, have um, penetrated Iran's uh, intelligence forces, and, you know, are are playing also quite a dangerous game because uh, we are where we are today, but, for no other reason that there's no JCPOA. So um, I think that's really important to establish. Uh, if we could get the JCPOA, you could control the nuclear program for a period of time. Um, but Israel, alongside the Gulf states, um, are now more concerned about the other issues. Uh, um, or they're mixing everything together and they want a different JCPOA or a stronger JCPOA or a longer JCPOA. And from Tehran's perspective and from where they sit and the cards that they're holding, those other issues will only be discussed over time with confidence and with trust. So let's move on into uh, Iran-Saudi relations, because that's certainly governing, I think, a lot of the regional dynamics in the Middle East right now. I think a lot of commentators have talked about, quote unquote, proxy wars. So what do Iran-Saudi relations actually look like? Is it merely the Sunni-Shia rivalry? I know that's probably a gross oversimplification of what's actually happening. But uh, I mean, what's the actual dynamic at play between these two countries, these two regional powers? Uh, the dynamic is, I think, pure and simple power competition, um, two very competitive systems. Um, that actually used to coordinate, obviously, pre-revolution. But, um, you know, in 1979, this Islamic revolution was very threatening to uh, other monarchies in the region. Uh, and the ideology and, and sort of the revolutionary populism um, uh, was a, a huge challenge across the Middle East. So they saw Iran as a threat. They saw Iran's call to export the revolution as a threat. Um, and, you know, these tensions date back to that period of time where the Saudis supported Saddam Hussein against Iran, um, where ideology has been instrumentalized by two competitive states. 
Um, there are no doubt sectarian tensions, but I don't think that that's the primary driver. Uh, the primary driver is, is structural. And uh, the Saudis would like to obviously see Iran contained um, and constrained. And the Saudis would like to see, above all, Iran uh, roll back and reduce its asymmetrical defensive posture in the region where it supports proxy groups in Arab countries. So that, it, you know, very much clouds uh, this pool. The problem here in this structural dynamic is that there is a deep asymmetry between Tehran and Riyadh. Um, and Saudi Arabia does not have the independent capacity um, or the tools to manage and constrain Iran independently. Uh, so this structural asymmetry and this power competition um, has played out quite um, aggressively in around the region, in Yemen, in Lebanon, in Iraq. Um, and Iran has proven to be, in all of those cases, a predatory but more effective uh, player. Um, so, you know, it complicates the whole landscape um, in, in a very tricky way. And when Donald Trump was president and maximum pressure was underway, um, the Iranians, as I mentioned before, in 2019, decided to push back. They started to accelerate their nuclear program, but they also started to accelerate their regional uh, resistance strategy. And they transferred a lot of tension to those states in the region that uh, supported maximum pressure. And so they detained tankers in um, the UAE, around the UAE. They also were behind um, drone and missile strikes um, on Saudi oil facilities in September 2019. So, um, and have supported the Houthis in Yemen. So it's a very complex landscape and it's very hard to resolve uh, because again, of the structural imbalance and the asymmetries in the relationship. I mean, yeah, there's so many more kind of intricacies of the geopolitics and uh, the regional affairs. Uh, but I want to take uh, an opportunity for the last question to kind of look internally uh, to Iran and talk about uh, a topic that you know quite well, uh, women in Iran um, and kind of the status of women, kind of their struggle uh, for kind of rights and freedoms. Of course, you know, it is it's a, a kind of theocracy. It is driven by a specific interpretation of Islam. Um, and there are also many kind of women in Iran who seek to have a, a different type of lifestyle. And so I'd love for you to kind of share your your thoughts about the 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 kind of drive for women's rights in Iran, what the kind of forecast looks like and um, kind of how difficult it has been for activists. Sure. It's an important and very complex picture. And I have to say that I myself haven't been back to Iran since 2009. So I'm quite cautious in, in how much authority I give to my opinion. Um, but I would say this, that, um, you know, the issue of women, and again, this isn't unique to Iran, has long been uh, a topic that authoritarian re regimes have instrumentalized, right? Um, for domestic discourse, for international discourse. Um, and I think Mohammed bin Salman's social liberalization uh, is, is a case of uh, in point there as well. Um, in the West, you know, many governments and, and people tend to sort of reduce um, the issue of women to how women dress and, and the veiling and or non-veiling as a sign of modernity and, and, and secularism. Um, and I think obviously that is overly simplistic. I know very progressive, um, but conservative women who wear the hijab all around the Middle East. And I know of, you know, quite the contrary. So um, I think what's important is um, the fact that in Iran, um, you have a very diverse population, but it's highly educated and it's very um, ambitious and it's definitely been constrained. Um, you know, women have definitely suffered um, disproportionately under the Islamic Republic. And they've suffered because of the Islamic interpretation, the strict constructionist Islamic interpretation with regards to women's rights. Um, and uh, uh, at the same time, though, uh, women have, I think, very creatively and consistently 
um, found ways to work around the system, um, you know, knowing that the system gives to women when they must, um, and they've made legal changes um, and concessions towards women very incrementally over the past 43 years. Um, but when it does come, you know, it's at the behest and the will of um, patriarchal men. Um, so they're finding workarounds um, uh, to survive, to socialize, uh, to have economic empowerment. But this, the activist space is, is, of course, very narrow, particularly today. Um, what the consequence of West, persistent Western pressure on Iran has been is um, a justification, a national security justification that has we have witnessed a crackdown of Iranian civil society, a civil society that has a long history, a huge level of dynamism and engagement. But that civil society has been um, really repressed over the past 20 years. Uh, journalists, environmentalists, women, labor, students. Um, so we're we're also in a phase where women have also disproportionately suffered from um, the economic consequences of sanctions. And so all of this pressure is actually been uh, a gift to um, the system. And it's not a system that I would necessarily characterize as theocratic anymore. It's autocratic, it's authoritarian, but it's, enabled uh, this authoritarianism to uh, perpetuate. And so what we have now today is not less Islamic Republic, we have more Islamic Republic. And that is bad for women, it's bad for young people, it's bad for minorities, it's bad for the region. Um, so, you know, I think above all, we should, as an international community and scholars and educated people, just be thinking about, um, how to manage and engage with the Islamic Republic and perhaps try to develop a different, different basket of policy tools um, to deal with a, a, a system that uh, is stronger today, more resilient, uh, you know, more confident. Um, and it's, you know, sort of taking it out on its own people. So on that note, uh, Dr. Vakil, thank you so much for joining us here today. Folks, uh, she has a great book out called Action and Reaction, Women in Politics in Iran, which was published in 2013. Uh, certainly much has happened since then, but please do check that book out. Uh, she's also done a lot of great work. We'll include links to that uh, in the description for this episode. But Dr. Vakil, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we learned a lot about what's actually going on inside of Iran, especially as we talk about so much of Iran's outward posture uh, to the rest of the world and our own posturing towards Iran. It's very important to understand these contexts. So thank you for giving us this background. Thank you so much for having me. So that was our episode with Dr. Bakil. Uh, Ryan, there was a lot of uh, interesting tidbits in there. Uh, specifically, I think around our conversation around who the next Ayatollah may be. So the current Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khamenei, is in his early 80s, and there have been rumors about his health and some illnesses for some time. Uh, definitely, I think her bits on you know him still being generally in command is very prudent uh, to hear and to talk about, uh, just because we often just identify like you know the older you get the less capable you are of running a country. Uh, not always the case. We're seeing it in many other countries where you know elderly folks are leading their country successfully. Uh, Mahathir, I think, is one such example. The guy was elected at 94 years old. But yeah, uh, Ryan, who was the successor again, Who potential successor to a Khamenei that she mentioned? Uh, none other than current President Raisi. Uh, of course, he has the kind of the uh, religious background that the Ayatollahs have, as well as the political uh, power, of course, you know, being the current president. And so uh, Dr. Vakil is, if she were to put her kind of chips behind a, a potential successor, she said that it would make sense to kind of be in step with someone who was a, a president, someone who has the religious credentials and none other than, of course, President Raisi. Of course, that can change depending upon how, you know, developments in the country move. Of course, we talked about the difference between kind of the, the hardliners and the more reformists 
uh, in the country, the reformers in the country. And so the back and forth may have a, a, determin, a determining factor on who may succeed the Ayatollah uh, when that, yeah. when, whenever that happens, who knows when, of course, as you mentioned, he's, he's getting quite old. Um, so that's kind of an interesting tidbit. Uh, another interesting aspect of this is the role of kind of regional actors. Of course, Saudi Arabia, Israel, uh, and the, you know the United States influence given sanctions and the attempt at a, a second round of the JCPOA after the Trump administration backed out of it. Uh, there, you know, Iran and even reports since we record this episode, Andre, are saying that Iran could very well begin developing a nuclear weapon and has the capability to do so. And so it's kind of now up to the United States and others in, in the P5 to try to prevent Iran from doing so through some sort of agreement, because that's really the only way in which that could happen. Yeah. Other than, of course, you know, offensive action. Yeah. And then like also just not willing to distill the con- the uh, the proxy conflicts between Iran and Saudi Arabia is just merely the Sunni-Shia rivalry, but really like great power competition, or at least regional power competition, not necessarily great power competition, but regional power competition. They're both growing powers in the region and, uh, you know, oversimplifying it as being due to Sunni-Shia. I think it's just a gross oversimplification. And then, I mean, I, I do recommend you all to check out her work on women in Iran. She's done a lot of great academic work, research uh, on that topic. Uh, please do go check that out. Yeah, without a doubt. It's it's uh, an area with, that I wish we, uh, wish we would have covered in a little more depth, but of course, you know, short on time as always. And so, uh, yeah, her, she's a scholar on the, the kind of the role and the status of women in Iran. And she something that she said is that this crackdown in civil society which of course has been kind of worsened by sanctions because the economic situation has has hurt women, uh, especially women and girls, especially. And so that's something that, of course, the international community needs to think about as they're developing their own foreign policies. But um, yeah, I mean, every action has a reaction. That's, you know, the, the title of her book. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, Ryan, what are you up to this week? Um, I am just trying to finish <laughs> this degree. I am so close. I got about a month until I'm fully done with this this joint JD and master's degree. And it's the home stretch. Um, and I'm trying not to slack off before it ends. So it's, it's a grind time. What about you? Working away? Uh, working away as always, monitoring the situation in Sri Lanka, waiting to see if one of our former guests actually does become the president, which will be very interesting to see uh, politically how that works, if that happens. But a uh, very interesting yeah, time. It's, it's certainly interesting. And that's why we will be back for another episode of What in the World. Uh, we are committed to providing you what in in the hell is going around around the world. And so we uh, will talk to you all on Friday. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Burn Bag Podcast. Uh, As always, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to stay up to date. And until next time, this is the Burn Bag.